him up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8th, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie in Illinois, co-host of Star Wars Action News, your Star Wars toy collecting podcast, the Star Wars Action News book club, looking at the Star Wars expanded universe novels and prominent member here at Now Playing. (laughs) Still recovering from Friday the 13th. (laughs) A little bit. This starts our Star Trek retrospective series. We are going to watch all 10 of the Star Trek movies in anticipation of the brand new J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot coming out in May of 2009. Now, I have a question about this. Just to kick it right off the bat, the new Star Trek movie, is it a reboot? Is it a prequel? Is it like Enterprise where it's a sea prequel? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone here know what we're seeing? I do understand that they've taken liberties and that if you want to say something that is starting over but going on a new course is a reboot, then I think that that's what this is. Because from what I understand that there are a couple things that could peeve fundamentalist trekkers. (laughs) Aren't there always? I've heard some moaning from some people here and there on different message boards I've read about, you know, different Trek continuities that are getting changed up based on the stuff they've seen in the previews already. But with any reboot, you know, it's different actors playing these guys, you know. So ideally, I'm thinking that they're thinking if this is a hit, they can continue with this for a while, right? So I'm guessing this is really what they call a reboot. But with Leonard Nimoy having a cameo in it as the older Spock, maybe it's within continuity, but things are being told a little bit differently just because they can be, you know? Okay, but I just wanted to make sure we had our terminology right. Whatever it is, it's a new Trek movie. (laughs) Yes, and I think this is a great segue to get into exactly what we're going to do here with this retrospective series. We are coming at this from three different perspectives, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to make it perfectly clear that although we have different familiarities with Trek, we are not experts, and we're not going to be reading every single piece of literature, background story, listen to every commentary, watch every DVD track. We are going to watch the movies and discuss our impressions of them. And when we have access to, or we actually have had a chance to read something about a piece of trivia or something to do with the plot, we will share that but this is not going to be like every fact checked every t crossed every i dotted there are plenty of places on the internet for that this is not that (laughs) i want to make that perfectly clear to those folks who are listening because we are bound to get some things wrong or miss something but then again we know we're not we're not intense trekkers here we're just fans you know i can't tell seti alpha 5 from serona 8 and that was french to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i don't even know that i would call myself a fan yet 
So let's talk about the point of view of each of us coming into this series. Uh, should I start? I guess I'm the yeah, noob please. this time. I know about Star Trek, and I watched two seasons of The Next Generation. I saw all of the movies with the old cast, I think. No, because they were in the, the one that had the n new ones as well. Number seven. I didn't see that You saw one, one through I saw, six. Yes. I saw one through six once, mostly in theaters at the time it came out, and have not returned to it since. I have not seen Deep Space Nine. I did not see Enterprise. I don't think I've ever seen a full episode of the original series. And I, for some reason, watched four episodes of Voyager once and wanted to like that one, but it uh, didn't quite work. And this time, I'm going to be the casual fan. Now, I have seen all 10 of the Star Trek movies. I have seen Star Trek before watching it for this podcast. I've seen Star Trek 1 only one time, and I have seen Star Trek 6 only one time. And all of the Next Generation movies, I've only seen one time, pieces and parts on cable. But 2, 3, and 4... I have seen many, many times they're some of my favorite movies when I watch Star Trek movies. When they're on cable, anytime they're on cable, I'll sit there and watch them if they're on. And Star Trek V, I have had the <clears throat> pleasure of seeing twice. So I am a casual fan. My wife loves watching The Next Generation, so I have seen, you know, when they have those marathons on holidays, I, you know, we tape a bunch of the best ones because she knows which ones are the best ones, and we've watched those. I guess I've seen about 40 or 50 Next Generation episodes. I've only seen a handful of the original series. When I'm up late at night, they rerun them on Me Too or TV Land or whatever it's called. Apparently, I've seen some of the classic ones, like when Spock was in Heat. Amok Time. Yeah, there you go. That's it. And I saw the one where the original captain was duped and the lady he fell in love with was, was an old lady. It was a fantastic episode. The Menagerie. <laughs> Booyah. And so I'm a casual Star Trek friend. I know my Star Trek pretty well. I could have a conversation with people. But as you said before, I don't know what Renier 5 are. I, I honestly have trouble telling a difference between a Cardassian and a Romulan. But I do know both of those names. So I'm a casual fan. And that's my approach to this series. And if you can't tell from my little interjections, I almost feel like I'm in a confessional booth. Forgive me, listeners, for I have sinned. <laughs> I am a recovering Trekkie, and I use the term Trekkie instead of Trekker because back when I was one, I didn't care, so I continue using Trekkie. I just think it sounds a little cool. Hi, Arnie. From 1987 <laughs> to 1992, Star Trek was pretty much my life. This was during the next generation years, or as I call them, the good years. I have seen all of the original cast movies more times than I can count. I've seen all of the next generation movies at least once. However, I must admit, much like the populace at large, my fandom has waned as we've moved further and further from 1990. I became a really hardcore fan. I was writing fan letters to the cast members. I have scrapbooks. I mean, as overboard as you can get, I got, okay? Let's just leave it at that. I had a spandex outfit. Let's just leave it at that. I could speak a little Klingon. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear some of that. Kapla. That's all I remember. Now... <laughs> <laughs> 
In the intervening years, I have to say that I still remain a Trek fan, much to the concern of my wife. During the marathons, having seen pictures of me in my Star Trek uniform, my wife tries to veer me away from Trek. She does not let me watch the marathons, even though I also know the good episodes. I watched all of The Next Generation beginning to end, even the bad years. I watched all of Deep Space Nine, which started with the bad years and ended with the good ones. I must say, though, I jumped ship on Voyager. Voyager. I couldn't get into it. And I did watch Enterprise, much again to my wife's chagrin. And I actually thought it was getting good when it got canceled. Like I said before, I may not know all of my aliens. I may not know all of my history and I may not know all of the expanded universe anymore. My knowledge is current as far as the in-depth schematics as of 1992. But I think I bring in a little bit of Trek cred to the show. And I think you do as well. <laughs> Now, I want to add, it's Stuart who was staging the intervention in 92. Mm, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up, but yes, I was the one that actually tried to get you out of... I wasn't trying to get you out of Star Trek. I was trying to get you to get a sense of priorities, I think is what I was, was trying to do. It was becoming a little dominant in your life, and I wanted to see you, uh, you know, kind of like our current financial situation. You don't put everything in one one system it might fail you diversify you put it in uh, in in several things and and you were kind of all star trek all the time i wanted you to enjoy some other things so how did you exactly approach this did you bring him to the star trek experience in vegas and confront him on that what did you do did you take his um, tricorder and lift up your head and say you can't get this you can't get this i hate to say it but i feel like star trek really helped me because they were putting out what i would call an inferior product at that time that they were they were <laughs> delivering things i knew arnie didn't want to buy but i saw him spending money on and uh i helped to underline the price tags and to make sure that it was understood what he was buying and at what cost so basically Stuart was my first wife <laughs> i knew a guy in college huh. who went back to the to the id center to get his photograph taken again but this time he went in his star trek outfit and he put the vulcan symbol with his hands up near his head and they took the picture of him and he had it on his id now i can only imagine the people taking the picture who did that and this guy would walk around the hall with his shirt on when, when the next generation was on tv he had his tricorder and he had all his cool toys and i have to admit he had the little thing you press the, the the thing where you talk to the computer that was pretty fun to play with i have to admit but you know that is the guy who i've always think of when i think of when people think of the extreme examples of star trek fans this guy was it but he embraced it man he had drawers full of the vhs tapes that had like two episodes yeah. per or three episodes per generation he was the biggest trek fan i ever met and you know what it didn't bother him that other people found that silly or stupid or made fun of him like water off a duck's back he didn't care and i thought that was really cool that you know what this is who he is this is what he's gonna do and he and i were friendly uh, but i'd never met anyone like that before until now arnie i have two friends who are like that <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool, man. I think it's weird that you're recovering. I think it's nice that you've moved on, but recovering is, it sounds like it was a problem. Do you admit it was a problem or do you think it was just something that you were really into and no longer of interest in? Here's why I say recovering. Because the gravitational pull of Trek always threatens to suck me down like an alcoholic with a bottle. <laughs> 
because just in prepping for this podcast, you don't want to know the fact that I've already priced the DVD sets for the entire series of all the series. All right, then. That's why I say recovering. It's because I agree with Stuart that there's a lot of inferior product with Trek, but I have a tendency to not be able to tell the good from the bad at times when I'm deep in it. And this is true. The other thing is, I mean, I went to a convention a while ago for Star Wars reasons and Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner and John Delancey were all there. And I was like, I was 14 again, seeing these people right there. I was just like, oh, oh my God, it's Commander Riker. You know, it's it's <laughs> I made my wife lean out of the car and shout at John Delancey when he was walking down the sidewalk. We love Q. And he just looked confused. But that is why I say recovering. I stand corrected. So I guess we should get into the movie we are here to talk about. Star Trek, the motion picture originally came out in 1979, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Stephen Collins, and the bald chick. I love Stephen Collins. I love me some Seventh Heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And And we'll have some more of that in a couple of movies. So why don't we get right into this? Maybe we should start with a very brief plot summary, something we didn't have to do for Friday the 13th because didn't really warrant it very much. But perhaps we should do like a one sentence plot summary of what this adventure is about in case those who are listening right now may not exactly remember what was the basic plot. May I? Oh, I wish you would, Mr. Recovering Trekkie. It's two and a half years after the original five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise, only three years of which we actually saw on television. In the time, Captain Kirk has been promoted to Admiral and is landlocked at Starfleet Command, and the Starship Enterprise has undergone a major refit in orbit of Earth, when suddenly a massive cloud, which we'll find out later is named V'ger, starts heading from Klingon space through the neutral zone straight at Earth, destroying space stations and Klingons along the way, and the only ship that is within range to intercept is the Enterprise. A very vain and star-wandering Captain Kirk regains control of the Enterprise from Captain Decker, and the Enterprise goes out to meet V'ger, picking up along the way the old crew, like getting the band back together in the Blues Brothers, before they finally penetrate the heart of V'ger and find out, oops, it's Voyager 6! We sent that out in the 90s! And it went out and became a supercomputer and was coming back to meet the creator. Thank you for that impromptu plot summary, Arnie. It actually uh, won't because I didn't prep that. You didn't prep that at all? No, that was all wow. off the cuff. Damn, that was <laughs> impressive. Um, <laughs> all right, so we covered the whole plot there. That's why I offered. I figured I could do it in about two minutes. Let's start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. So I watched the director's cut of this movie, and mine had like a three or four or five minute screensaver type thing with the star field with the overture playing. That was not just your director's edition. They all had that. Even the, even the standard too. release, I could not believe how long that went on. It was in theaters like that. Yep. And, uh, you know, this is uh, a nod to classic Hollywood studio filmmaking of the 60s. I would just like to point out, before we get into Trek and Trek lore, I'm more of a movie guy. Robert Wise is a big movie guy. He made big, splashy musicals, among them West Side Story and The Sound of Music. And they always start those movies with a big overture, much like you experience. The orchestra is warming you up before the curtain parts, and that's what they do in the film. So I don't know why they brought Robert Wise in to kick off Star Trek, but he really brings that old Hollywood sensibility right from the get-go in this movie. 
In fact, there have only been three movies since this one to actually instate the overture. And do you know what those are? One was The Dark Crystal. Oh, I was not aware of that. Okay, so then we get on with the movie, we get into it, and then the theme starts, and it's, I love the theme, it's this Next Generation theme, that was great. I was just and- about to point out, this is the music that they ended up using for Next Generation, yes? Yes, Roddenberry yes. was such a fan of this score that when he did Next Generation, he pulled it out of mothballs. But obviously they didn't use it for the original TV series, this is the first time anybody was hearing this score. Correct. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, I did notice, I did notice throughout the movie, though, there were hints of the doo-doo theme song here mm-hmm. and there they did it a lot but it came in once in the, now and then it was kind of nice yep a few callbacks and let me just say i i think i need to say this right at the get-go this was an overblown episode of the tv series because you had the original music like you talked about you have the captain's log entries like you'd have when returning from a commercial on the old series in just about every way this just felt like another episode of the series just with a much larger budget Well, I'm glad you said that because my big problem with this movie was the lack of anything actually going on. I felt this movie was really kind of slow paced and there's no action sequences really going on at all. And while interesting, by the time the bald-headed chick gets kidnapped and then replaced with a robot version of herself and we find out about V'ger, I got into the, you know, what was going on. But you can hardly call that, for me, a real interesting plot, per se. And I really didn't understand why he had all this mumbo-jumbo about Kirk not being a captain anymore, he's an admiral, and going on. Honestly, I felt a lot of what was happening on this movie could really have been cut out of this movie. I felt there was a lot of junk in here that didn't have to be here. For example, the whole character of Decker. And I know now why he was there. I looked it up in IMDb, but when I was watching this movie, I really felt like the character was superfluous to this entire movie, including what happens at the ending, fine, but I, I just really didn't feel he was needed do you guys feel the same way or do you have a a contrary opinion i thought it was weird this the tv show had been off how many years by the time that this movie was coming out 10 this is the first time in 10 years anybody's seen this cast and we spend at least as much time on the bald chick and deckard as we do on you know sulu or Chekhov or some of the supporting characters i thought that was a really weird decision to relaunch the beloved characters and have them kind of take a back seat to this guy and i also thought it was it was an incredibly somber movie i was there was very little joy in seeing these folks get back together it was very stately, drawn out. You could use the word boring. Um, and I would. It definitely, it definitely <laughs> didn't feel like, hey, we're all back together again. It was it was much more in the style of like 2001. I, it made me think of the, the Kubrick film and just how there are just long shots where they're just enamored with – You know, there's the ship. And like, I mean, I don't know how long it took Kirk to get on the damn ship. Six minutes. I stopped watching it. And here's the joke. They got a transporter beam. He didn't even have to drive there, but they have six (laughs) minutes of him driving up to the ship. And I'm like, please beam him up, Scotty, please, because this is taking too long. But I digress. Didn't you see the transporter's broken? They had to do that. Well, that came out later. And I do want to talk about that scene because that was weird. 
All right, let me do an information dump here, and I apologize for this information dump. The reason we have a lot of what we have is this movie was actually originally an episode of a relaunched Star Trek series called Star Trek Phase 2, or as I'd read about it in the 80s, just simply Star Trek 2. Star Trek was never a hit on CBS. It was canceled real early. Everybody knows the letter-writing campaign stories, but it found a second life with stoners and geeks in syndication and became a major hit and they were going to relaunch it as a series and there was a whole rigmarole because Nimoy didn't want to come back because there were some licensing issues and he was upset he didn't get his money and they weren't sure who they could get back and who they couldn't. They weren't sure how long Shatner would stick around so they created all these characters including Ilea and Decker for Star Trek Phase 2 the series and now that may start to make a little bit more sense. Why do you have these extra characters? Well in fact the Vulcan who dies in the transporter thing was meant to be a replacement for Spock because they didn't think they could get Nimoy back. But then what happened in 1977 to change everything? Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. And Star Wars. Let's not forget Star Wars. Oh, right. I forgot about Star Wars. How could I? And all of a sudden, everybody was rushing space movies into development. Star Trek Phase 2, these episodes, got a rewrite. They had to rebuild all of the sets because everything had been built for TV standard resolution. Now it had to be done for the big screen. They got rid of their TV crew, which included Alan Dean Foster as a writer, and they just took his basic story for a couple of scripts and blew the thing up into this movie we have. But the director's the one who said, we can't do this without Nimoy. Somebody wrote Nimoy a check, voila, Spock's back. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because uh, I was feeling like there was superfluous characters, and yes, that, that, that explains a lot. Thank you for that. The other thing I want to state, Roddenberry hated Star Wars. He hated Star Wars. He felt it was too fantasy and not enough science fiction. And so when this movie was coming out, he was like, I don't want to put words in his mouth, and he's not here to speak for himself because he's dead, but it was basically going to be the anti-Star Wars. It was his way of saying this is science fiction hence why we have no action get the sense that they're just enamored with the technology because there's just these long shots of the ship or just yeah the engine room or just anything that involves any of the mechanics yeah drifting through the space cloud yeah it's just drawn out yeah and they don't fire the guns they don't fire any phasers there's nothing going on it's just a bunch of talking But that's what the series was. If you watch the original series, which I realize you guys didn't, the original series, when people saw the effects, they were hokey. They were laughable. The show lived and died by its talking. And that's what they did is they just pumped an episode full of air and put it on the big screen. And that's not fulfilling in a cinematic experience. Yeah, I I thought that was the weird thing about this one. And for me, it wasn't that it was not action-packed. I can, like, I love 2001. I think it's a terrific film. It was that this is supposed to be a story built around a crew of astronauts exploring the galaxy, sense of adventure. I mean, it was an old Western idea that they put in space. It's mostly a very, very somber mood piece 
with characters that that don't even make it to the end of the movie. You know, they just get written out of it or killed. And the stories to trekkers like myself isn't even that original because in the original series they actually already had an episode where a satellite launched from earth went to deep space came back super intelligent and tried to kill everyone it had been done if i'm wrong i mean isn't this what they do again when the whale one comes i mean there's like something that comes and that's why they have to go back and get the whales because it's destroying everything until it hears the whales yes 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 Okay. Well, I want to backtrack just a second there. I would like a little bit of phaser action here. That's not dirty, but I didn't mean it that way. I understand what Star Trek is when I watch Star Trek The Next Generation television programs, and I even watch the original series. If there isn't any actual physical action or fist fighting going on, at least they have me invested in the characters and the situation and the puzzle and what they're supposed to be doing in that episode. The biggest problem I had with this movie, if there's no action with it, and that's fine if there's not a lot of action because it's not Star Trek, then give me characters and plot that I care about and that care about what's going to happen. With Decker and Ilea, when they give in to V'ger at the end of the movie, I just didn't care about those two characters because during the course of the movie, they didn't really get a rapport with me. When McCoy walks on the, sh- the ship, the movie lights up. I mean, the character is a character that is larger than life. And the way Kirk interacts with him is it's just, that's what I wanted to see for the rest of the movie when all the other characters were interacting. But instead, McCoy saves the movie for me. Because even Spock is too droll in this one, you know? So if you don't have a lot of action, I agree with you, like 2001, at least have characters and situations that interest me. And they failed in that situation, in my opinion. I think that's, I think that's Robert Wise's decision. I think that when you look at the movies that he's made and the style that he's making them, it's an antiquated style and he, it's just drawn out. Like that first scene in Vulcan, it just looks like it's something out of Ben-Hur or something like that. It's this epic, somber, drawn-out scene and it's so weird that we spend so much time on these moments and not on the group working together. I don't know why they couldn't have just started it with the crew still together. I thought it was yeah, really totally belabored, agree. really belabored to try and piece the crew together. And it doesn't even make any sense. Kirk apparently barges into a meeting and says, hey, I used to run this show. I'm going to drive it now. And they're like, OK, I, how does we don't even see the meeting and how that transpires. But he looks like a jerk to me he like basically somebody else is supposed to be commanding this ship now and he walks in and says hey i used to do this move kiddo i would be pissed too (laughs) that's what i was gonna say is brock you said that you didn't care about decker decker when i watched this movie this time decker was the only character who wasn't a jerk Mm. if you look at this cast this is as a fan back then one of the big mysteries is what the hell happened between the end of the series to get everybody here where spock's off on vulcan doing this colonar thing mccoy's apparently swinging with that big medallion They, they got him right out of a disco They are in San Francisco. (laughs) You got Kirk as a ground crew person, and then the rest of them, they didn't even get promoted. It's still Commander Scott and Lieutenant Uhura. Forget them. But mm-hmm. you've got you got to wonder what happened. But then they get together and they're all just jerks. You know, Spock is kind of like, screw all of yous. And Kirk is saying, I know what's best, even when he doesn't. And even McCoy is kind of a jerk in this one. It's like Decker's the only person who you feel bad for. It's like Decker knows his stuff, worked hard, and gets completely screwed for it. Yeah, I actually, the one I felt the most sorry for was, and he's already been mentioned here, but is the uh, Litter Mimoy look 
lookalike Vulcan that's supposed to be the science officer. And Kirk's like, meet me on the ship. I'm going to take over the ship and you're going to work for me. And he was like, okay, okay, sir. That sounds logical. I don't know. And so the poor man does what he's supposed to and goes to the transmitter room and they beaming him up and help me out here, folks. They're not able to fully materialize him on the ship. And they can't send him back, so he just ends up to like blow away or no, no, dissipate. He, he, actually or... Gets, he gets bounced back to the other side, but he's not fully formed because some of the molecules were lost in the beam, and therefore, what as they think they put it, what came back on the other side is not very pleasant or something like that. Like he yeah, came no, back yeah, it was a... it was very sensitive. What what came back didn't live very long. Yes. Well, thanks, buddy. All right, you can tell the wife and kids. <laughs> You know, I thought that was such a horrible way. I know Star Trek is always, that's a cliche of the TV show, is that whenever they beam down on a planet and there's a guy you've never seen before, he's the one that's going to be killed. But boy, I right. mean, a transporter accident? Couldn't they have come up with some other way to get this character out of there? It just seems like, why couldn't they just have Spock there? Why Why was he on Vulcan? I understand part of this movie's struggle, when you look at it as a story, is that Spock is trying to determine how emotionless he should be, how logical uh, he should be. And so in the beginning of the movie, about to take this ceremony that's going to, what, make him completely emotionless in the future? Is that how I'm to understand this? Yes, pretty much, I think. Yes, yes. It seems like he's about to undergo a procedure that will make him even less fun at parties. (laughs) And he has a change of heart and spends most of the rest of the movie debating about whether he is pro-cloud or anti-cloud. Yeah, it, I don't know. I just, I can't relate to any of these characters who were so relatable in that original series. They're not any fun to watch. I mean, I've always, uh, here's a secret confession here, though. I've always enjoyed the secondary characters, mostly because they are so underdeveloped. I mean, I'm a Sulu Ahura Chekhov fan. I always want to see them do something. But in this movie, Ahura, she does mess with the frequencies towards the end. She gets to do, like, one thing cool. But, like, Chekhov's big scene, he gets burnt. He gets (laughs) touches and controls, and he gets burnt. That's it. That's all the man does. And you know what? Like, Bone, why is Bones there? Kirk has this whole big scene about, like, I need you. You need to come, Bones. I need you. Bones, even when Chekhov gets burnt, Bones doesn't even help. It's like some woman there, like, cauterizing the wounds or something like that. I'm like, couldn't at least Bones get a swab or something? Like, you got him there. Why is Bones there? Bones didn't do a damn thing there. Well, but in defense of that that woman was nurse chapel from the original series and the woman who was doing the transporter was kirk's secretary from the original series so oh okay they really got the band back together when Koi first got there with the beard on, he's like, her chapel's an MD, whatever. And then later on, when she actually shows up, I'm like, oh, that's chapel? Because they didn't really make it clear to me. It's also Troy's mother from The Next Generation. Isn't she Roddenberry's... Wife. Wife? And I watched the movie with my wife, and as we're watching and Chapel's talking, my wife screams, holy cow, that's the voice of the computer in the next generation. And apparently it is. Every series, including the new movie, she's the computer's voice. I didn't know that. She died two weeks after finishing the new movie's line. I didn't know that either. This is why I'm here. I remember hearing about a nurse chapel, but I didn't, I don't know if she plays much of a part in the future movies, but. Never see her again. 
Yeah, I don't associate her with being part of the crew when I think about that original crew. Can I say one other thing, too? I know I didn't watch the original shows, but, like, I think about their colored uniforms and all that being so significant. And here, I felt like I was looking at them and, like, do they all work at a spa? They're all in these scary cloth <laughs> uniforms. I thought they were like, pajamas. I'm like, is Uhura going to get me some towels? Because I don't, it doesn't look right. It does not look right. And I know I don't like the costumes at all. I agree with you 100%. I was wondering why they're wearing belt buckles without belts. Yeah. It was the 70s and it was that look and you know Buck Rogers did it too but ew, it was it was hideous. I missed the uh the red and the the yellow and all of that. Yeah, these were the worst uniforms out of everything Trek that I've ever seen. These are by far the most drab, bland, shapeless, colorless, boring nightgowns they've ever worn. Mm. And explain to me why they can wear shirt sleeves. They're short sleeves, Sulu and Kirk. And the last thing I want to see is, is Kirk's arm hair all over the screen, you know? I thought that was really inappropriate. Can I tell you something as an aside? Yeah. A friend of mine's wife actually has waxed Shatner's back hair. Continue. Okay. <laughs> speaking of hair, speaking of but hair. But where now, do we, we go? go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was less impressed by the hair than I was, you know, I know that Shatner plays now sort of a caricature of himself. He overdoes it, and, and I, I know the parodies. It's true. His performance oh, yeah. in this, it really is over the top in a way that is bizarre. And since he sort of comes into the picture as a bully who pushes a, a likable captain out of the way and, and doesn't even appear to know how to run the new ship, I thought it was a really even more alienating thing to have him be so obnoxious and overdramatic in all of these these long scenes in the second half of the movie. I thought, if he is the captain of the ship, he's the one I want to like. I mean, I love Picard. I, I, I think he's a great character. This guy, I don't wouldn't follow him anywhere. Now, <laughs> I took this movie upon watching it this time and going into it, knowing what to expect, as almost a character study, ordinary people in space, if it were, because each of the main characters has somewhere they have to get. Kirk has to come to terms with his limitations. Spock has to come to terms with his humanity. Decker has to merge and mate with a robot for whatever reason that I don't quite get. And I think that sums it up is I think that this movie was supposed to rely on its characters instead of the stunning action, but I just don't get why any of the characters are on their journey or what it is that makes them complete the journey. I, I don't see at which points the characters evolve or redeem themselves. I felt like it was Spock's movie. I felt like if there was a star to this movie from the original cast, it was Spock because he's the one who is the least connected to being on this mission. In fact, we don't really know why he came back to do it. He's sort of called by a mysterious force away from the ceremony. He somehow finds the ship in his little pot. It was all very mysterious how he winds up there, but we're happy to see him okay. And then when he realizes what they're facing, this super intelligence, I think we're supposed to get the sense that he may side with that because it's more logical or it's more logic-based in its thinking than the emotional crew. And that there's this whole debate between logic and emotion and that he ultimately has a very bizarre scene in which he's crying, not because they're about to die, but because the machine world is so cold and not beautiful. 
Do you remember this scene? Yeah, oh yeah, of course I do. What the hell is he talking about? He's weeping because V'ger can't feel. Yeah. V'ger's a stunted being. Mm-hmm. And you're right. That is the character who he goes out, he mind melds with Ilea floating in space, and he comes back a changed man. Him, I get. I just, I don't understand why Kirk, you know, went from jerk to hero, if he ever did, really. And I don't understand when Decker is standing there going, as much as you wanted the Enterprise, I want this. Why does he want it? I don't get it. He wants he a lot of her. Yeah, yeah. This, am I correct in saying we've never seen them before or since, never. right? This is Never. it. He is the son of a character from one episode of the original series who was crazy. Yeah, but we don't see him before. Yeah, we've no. never established this love affair that's driving the whole thing. But yes, well, they drop it in he the was movie. in love with a bald chick. Bald chick is killed, which was also weird that there was this kind of scan that appears on the bridge and it kills her for some reason. No one else. It figures out who's not coming back for the next one and takes them. <laughs> and, um, it replicates her as this, uh, you know, um, sort of bumbling, take me to your leader, pushy kind of agent for V'ger. She's literally like walking through walls being like, I am going to kill all of you after I finish. I figure out what you are all doing. <laughs> And he is so, thinks she's basically what? She's so hot that I just have to get with this, even though it's a robot and she's got no sense of humor. I just got to ride this to the end of the universe. Can I can I just tell you that I have some notes here that I took during the movie? And one of them was when Kirk gives an ultimatum to the bald chick. Leela? Uh, Le 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 What's her name? Ilea. Ilea, basically saying, we'll give you the creator if you take this to V'ger personally. I have in my notes, Kirk just basically says, take me to your leader. <laughs> you just said it right now. Yeah, so, well, it, she she plays a very strange role because, yeah, she's sort of like this ambassador to the robots. But they make this big detail that she has encoded in her brain, even though she is a machine, the emotions actually have been encoded in some kind of matrix in her head and can be brought back to the four when they like put a headband on her and suddenly she like recalls falling in love with the the captain and she's charmed yet again it was a little splash you know it was a little 80s fish out of water <laughs> wasn't tugging at my heartstrings but i guess they had to do something so i guess you could make the argument that he was able to or is able to make the machines feel more and uh she's able to give him all access she drops a line out of the blue for no good reason, a blatant line of exposition that she'd taken a vow of celibacy. So their forbidden love was supposed to be something that was... Oh, you're right. Yep. Now, let me add to this. You guys have only seen the director's editions, or at least that's all you remember. I remember the extended VHS cut that, yes, it was longer. And... There was a <laughs> line where Ilea is talking to Sulu because Ilea sits next to Sulu and Sulu's like all nervous with this hot chick. And she says she would never take advantage of a sexually immature species. So all of the Deltons are like Max. You know, they, they know what's going on down there. And apparently, uh, what's the rap song? Uh, they got the magic shop or something, the magic box or something. Uh, I don't know the rap, dude. No. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Candy shop? Yeah, they've got the candy shop. Okay, that was 50 uh, Cent. Okay, so um, <laughs> let's beam um, him I off wanna... this. Program. 
I would like to segue. First thing I want to talk about is the special effects. Now, these are Academy Award nominated special effects. They lost to Alien. Thank mm. God they lost to Alien. Yeah, because the Christmas lights in Mother's cockpit are so much better than Dykstra's work here. Right. Well, let me tell you something. Those Klingon ships in the beginning of the movie, they looked like models, and the matte lines are black and thick as night. Now, I understand it's 1979, and maybe we'd be saying the same thing about Star Wars if they didn't have the special editions. I don't know. I still watch the original cut of Star Wars, so I don't see them. But all I'm trying to say is the pasted on Scotty and Kirk in the shuttle looked pretty flat. Yeah. When they were flying around the ship for 20 minutes, which, by the way, they go <laughs> from the back to the front, from the front to the back, to the back to the front for no reason, but that's okay. My wife calls that the Trekkie boner scene. Uh, yeah, and we were going back and forth and back and forth, and they dock in the other part of the ship. We're like, why don't you just go there directly? Exactly. Okay, anyway, so they, those shots of the two of them in the shuttle looking at each other and smiling were, well, different. But the point I'm trying to make is that those shots of the interior looked crappy, but the actual ship pans look great because they don't look like a model too much. But a lot of the matte paintings look like matte paintings and models look like models. And I know it's 30 years ago, but I don't remember Star Wars looking that obvious. Now, same year, I just recently, seriously, just watched the movie that was also nominated for the Academy Award that year called The Black Hole. Disney's answer to Star Wars, and you could see wires, seriously see wires. You can almost see where the map painting ends and the people begin. It's much more obvious than even this, but that was state-of-the-art back then. Keep in mind that you're looking at a special edition of this. They've already cleaned this up before you ever saw it. It looked much worse. Well, I realize I'm watching it on DVD, and, and obviously the big screen used to be able to hide some things better because of the grain on the film, and of course, VHS would deteriorate every time you watch it, so therefore that, that might have helped as well, but I'm watching on my 42-inch high-definition television on DVD, but they looked pretty obvious to me. I understand it's 30 years ago, but even for 30 years ago, it looked pretty obvious to me. I think you're overly harsh on it, but part of it in my opinion, is I don't think they knew what they were doing. Everybody saw Star Wars and decided to rush to the forefront with special effects. Can you guys tell me what the hell V'ger is? In this special edition, you at least see the formation of clouds, although I would really like somebody to tell me how clouds form in space. But beyond that, even in... In the original edition, you didn't even get to see the clouds that well. You just kind of saw flashes of light and shadow. It's all very abstract. Now, whether or not you can see matte lines, I couldn't. I couldn't in this director's edition. I don't necessarily pay attention to matte lines, but I don't think that the effects they did were handled very well because I didn't get a sense of anything out of it. V'ger was this amorphous blob that was, you know, a mixture of apertures and spectrums and various geometric shapes. And then now the scene where they walk off the Enterprise's hull, that is quite obviously brand new. I think you guys would know that even just watching it, that that effect sticks out like a sore thumb. Before you saw basically toothpicks on top of the hull just kind of moving. I mean, you, there were people, but you just, it was such a far shot. You couldn't tell at all what was going oh. on. I didn't huh. think that this special edition was that bad. I think it was a little better than Alien from what I remember of Alien, but they weren't anything that I'm going to jump up and down with either. 
you're telling me the computer generated steps that they walked off the ship with the amazing gravity and <laughs> oxygen shield, which I thought was very funny and convenient. But um, I just thought that was really clever, actually, of them to do that because they can do that in Star Trek. But you're telling me those computer generated steps were not Tron like vector effects, but actually modern day CGI put into this movie? Yeah. Yeah, you saw a to- uh, they've cleaned up a lot of the effects for this one. That scene is completely different. Before, you just kind of see this far-off shot of people who are obviously matted in, and you can't really tell how the hell they're walking off the hull or anything. It's it makes it's really a head-scratcher in the first version. Oh, well, no I would idea. like to actually d- defend the effects work just a little bit. I mean, I hear what you're saying about it looking like models and... I love Alien, and there's no way that I could say that that wasn't more groundbreaking, certainly in its art direction and its design. Oh, yeah. I'm speaking only technically when I say Alien is worse. Only technically. Well, I thought that some of the stuff was kind of beautiful when they're drifting through the clouds. I thought some of it was nice. It It isn't very clear what it is, and it again made me think about 2001 and how, you know, there's this monolith that keeps appearing to mankind at various stages, and it's like this big black box and makes these weird shrieking sounds and nobody quite knows what it is and apparently there's a whole different dimension inside of it it's possibly a doorway it's possibly god there's a giant fetus inside of it or something i felt like they they were kind of cribbing from that and that robert wise probably was a big fan of of this and, and trying to emulate that and so he wanted to create the impression that yes we didn't know exactly what v'ger was and it was the problem is they have to answer it 2001 leaves it ambiguous and, you know, we can make our own interpretations. This, we find out, oh, it was a space probe that went off to a robot world and they reprogrammed it. Then why, yeah, why the clouds and the mist and all of the other things? I also want to bring up, since you brought it up, Brock, Black Hole. I thought the plot was very similar to the Black Hole. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like the tone was very similar to the Black Hole. I Tone, definitely. So I saw both of those movies, by the way, both Star Trek, the, the motion picture, I'm dating myself now, and the Black <laughs> Hole in theaters in South Dakota. I was, I was a very small child living in South Dakota, and it was a one-screen movie theater town, and I saw both of them in theaters, and I was a huge Black Hole fan. I had the tote bag, I had uh, the soundtrack, and the models, and all of it. I bought all of that. Star Trek, when I saw it, in theaters it was south dakota and there were a lot of cowboys and i was behind a man with a particularly large stetson and i couldn't see anything i couldn't see the screen he was he was completely in front of me and all i could hear was like the space clad sounds and i was trying to poke around his hat for the whole movie and then halfway through i just gave up because i realized i couldn't see anything and i i was far less into that movie uh, it made no sense to me as a child i remember thinking that i didn't enjoy it at all but black hole black hole i was down with as long as we're talking about first time seeing this movie i first saw it on vhs in the late 90s i'd seen two three and four before i went back and saw this one and i saw this and really just was instantly not a fan but my worst experience seeing this was when star trek 5 opened i decided i was going to watch one through four in order before going and seeing five and five had an 11 a.m showing so i got up around midnight and put in part one and tried to stay away through part one as I raced towards part five rewatching these movies I'd seen already so many times that was really not one of my better decisions 
and while we're comparing stories, I did something similar, Arnie. I rented it when I was in college in the mid-90s because I had never seen this one. And I had rented five also because I had never seen five. And so back-to-back watching one and watching five, uh, that was not a good choice either. So... (laughs) I think I'd take a kick in the nuts before I do that. I didn't realize. I, I had heard both were not the best Trek films, of course, obviously, but I didn't know exactly what I was in for. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, the other thing I wanted to bring up that I want to make sure we talk about is Viger himself. And what it, we mentioned earlier in your plot synopsis, what Viger was, it is the Voyager Pro from the 70s. And I both love and dislike this, and I want to explain why I dislike it first before I go into why I love it. My biggest beef with Star Trek, even on the TV shows, in the movies, is all of these references to the 20th century, and there are some to the 19th century also. This is, what, the 23rd, 24th century? Kill them once in a while to make something up from, oh, that was from the 23rd century. That was from the 22nd century. But everything seems to be like, you know, Moby Dick this, and, you know, Shakespeare that, and Peter Pan, and, and this is for another reference to the 20th century. Well, they did make some stuff up, because if you think about the next movie, The Wrath of Khan, that was from the eugenics mm-hmm. wars of the 1990s. Yes, it's 20th century, but it's 30 years after it was written. They did put stuff in the future for later. Zephram Cochran, they did stuff. Zephram Cochran is the big exception, which is why I love that movie. Zephram Cochran was in the original series. I didn't know that. I haven't watched the original I'm series. Just t- I'm, I'm just I, correcting I know the movie, you. So- <laughs> Okay, well, I'm happy you are. I'm saying as a casual Star Trek fan, you know, they go to the 1940s, what is it, like in, in the original series with the, the fedoras on, they constantly, when I watch stuff like the second star of the right and straight on until morning comes up later in these series, I, I get that there's, row, row, row your boat, it's big in number five, okay? Oh. So for me, I see constant 20th century, 19th century stuff, it keeps coming up, and I just, as a casual fan, I'm like, really? Why these constantly keep bringing up? That being said, and I'm sure I'll mention that again later on as we keep going, in the series. But that being said, I love the ending of this movie. I love what V'ger turns out to be. And I thought that was incredibly, incredibly smart. And I didn't know that tidbit about what you said before about the it being a plot they use in the original series. Again, I don't know the original series that well. I thought it was so clever that they tied it in to something that we did in the 20th century in this future. And it makes total sense. And I knew the ending this time when I watched watched it the first time I didn't know and so I really loved it and this time I knew it so I, I was watching the clues and it really does sort of fit in really well to what V'ger is so yes the cloud aside which you're absolutely 100% correct on but I thought it was really really cool did you guys think this was a really cool plot device or do you think it was lame you know I, I didn't have a problem with it being uh, a 20th century space probe uh, converted I thought that this was uh, a moment the revelation of it was something we'd seen in science fiction movies before, like, God forbid, Zardoz or something where we like the, the words V'ger and then they wipe off the grime and it's like, oh, it's Voyager, you know. I, I wish it hadn't been called V'ger. I guess that's all that I'm really saying is I mm-hmm. thought that it was corny that the name – it didn't know its own name because it had some dirt on it. Uh, eh. yeah. It can form giant clouds and constructs in space, but God forbid it clean. <laughs> and I want to bring up one other thing that I had a thought of. Nimoy talks about this coming from a, a world all of machines in a perfect machine world that's scary and not beautiful and whatever. Could this be the Borg? You're not the first one to think that. 
It has been put in some expanded universe novels written by Shatner himself that actually V'ger not only traveled through space, but traveled through time, which is a familiar Star Trek construct. And either he spawned or was spawned by the Borg. I haven't read the book, but yeah, they have tied V'ger to the Borg in some EU, but it was not intentional. It actually all started by just an offhand comment by Gene Roddenberry right after the Borg were created in the next generation. Mm. To go back to what Brock said, yes, yeah, it kind of gets corny that it's the 20th century, but there's something you have to understand about Star Trek, and this is fundamental to what Star Trek was under Gene Roddenberry, which is very different than what Star Trek is now. Because when Roddenberry died, a lot of his ideals were flushed. But Roddenberry truly was in the vein of like a Forey Ackerman or one of those other idealists who truly believes his own hype. And he really felt that what we did today mattered. You haven't seen the original series, but the episodes there, they beat you over the head with morality, be it about racism or pollution or hippies, whatever the social issue of the day was, that's what the episodes were. And they were all just a sci-fi metaphor for our time, kind of like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of thing, if you understand what I'm saying, because Buffy was all about metaphors for high school using vampires. This was all metaphors for 60s social issues using space. And what Roddenberry really wants to believe, and I believe he just held on to this to his dying day, is that we are building a future for ourselves of its utopia, a future without war, a future without greed, a future of mankind unified. And what we do today is paving the way for the future. And that's why Voyager 6 from our current Voyager series matters. He's trying to add importance and weight to inspire the people of today to build a better tomorrow. And in some ways, I believe that has been Trek's lasting legacy is that the people it inspired in the 60s and 70s have gone on today to become some of our greatest minds and our greatest engineers and inventors. There's no denying that people who have made a lot of medical breakthroughs and a lot of science breakthroughs were inspired by watching Trek as a kid. I'm not one of today's greatest scientists mind, so I'm not one of them, but that's what is you're seeing here is Roddenberry trying to speak directly to the audience to say what you do makes this perfect future. Well said. Well said. And don't forget, he was the first series what, to have an Asian guy and the Russian guy and the black woman. First interracial on, kiss on, on television? Bridge. Yeah. And and then that's Whoopi Goldberg said that when she came on The Next Generation. That's the reason she used to love Star Trek was the only one that had black people in space or something like that. She made a joke about that. But it really makes you think about, wow, I mean, he had all these different, you know, he had Scotsman. He had all, all these different kinds of people in one place working together for a common goal. And it was just, well, that already was. I mean, putting a Russian in in the height of the Cold War. Yeah. It definitely right. had a hippie idealism to it. And I think, you know, that makes sense. The show at that time, it was appealing to counterculture and to people that hadn't quite joined the, the hippies on the forefront there. To get back to this movie, and this is something Stuart hinted at earlier, we've talked at depth about the primary plot. However, so much of this movie isn't about the primary plot. It's about malfunctioning tractor beams and wormholes and malfunctioning warp drives. Did this have anything to do with the movie or was this just somebody had a spirograph and said, look, it looks like a wormhole? I didn't understand that scene at all. I didn't understand why it was so difficult to get to the cloud. I found the whole setup that the Enterprise 
Enterprise was the closest ship to deal with this. First of all, it was very weird to be. They're at Earth, and this is the, the closest ship that is going to be able to get there. Spock's coming from Vulcan. I don't know where that is. And he gets to the <laughs> ship before there. I'm like, how could they not know about this thing? And suddenly they have three days before it's going to consume Earth. I just feel like the whole thing was very contrived, and it did not need to be as complicated as it was to get essentially an old crew back together and have some fun in space. I don't know why it was that hard, but they made it really hard. Well, they never had fun in space. Let's end this. I mean, there was no fun in this movie. No. This movie was less fun than The Sound of Music. I would have liked to have seen, you know, the <laughs> the crew of the Enterprise. Yodel lady, yodel lady, yodel lady. Hee hoo. You know, <laughs> seriously, that movie had a, was about Nazi Germany and was more fun than this film. It's very solemn. And Robert Wise also made the original Haunting movie, which they remade about 10 years ago. But it's a pretty scary movie. It's a pretty good movie for its time. But I, I kept feeling like this movie felt like a horror movie. Like it's it's so portentous and ominous and everything is like going into this dark unknown where things are, you know, it's shooting laser beams back and killing other ships. And you're really getting the sense that they're going into their doom. I was like, where is the fun in this? It was really wrong not to have some playfulness and remind people why they like these characters to beginning. Because if you didn't already have preconceived notions about who these people were, you weren't inclined to like them. What's funny is the only fun they had was when they got back to V'ger and then they just had this like wrap up dialogue where Bones is like, it's been a while since I've delivered a baby. And, you know, <laughs> that was just like from the end of every Star Trek episode. If they were chips, I would have expected them to all give thumbs up to the camera and freeze frame. And it, that was the <laughs> only time when I felt like the cast gelled and it was the last damn frame. Yeah. I agree. I agree it with all the things you guys have said. For me, this one was a pretty uh, uh, plotting movie. I, I did enjoy some aspects of it, but I, I think we're all in agreement here. So I'm going to ask you, as we always do, do you recommend Star Trek The Motion Picture? Stuart? You know what? I feel like if they could heavily edit this thing down into the original hour it was supposed to be, I could back it. But in its current form, in this long director's cut, no. Arnie? I don't want to demonize this film because having watched it, it's not a bad movie. It is a boring movie, though. There's no excitement to be had here, and it is never referenced again in the series. Skip it. Start with number two. And I myself do not recommend this at all, although there is some good things to be seen here. I think you might be better off, as you just said, Arnie, coming back to this one after you've watched some of the better ones in the series just to have it all in scope. There's no need to start here at all. So that's our first episode of our Star Trek retrospective series. I hope you will join us for our next one. We will have a new Star Trek show every week until the new movie comes out in May of 2009. If you enjoyed the show, please listen to our other shows at www.nowplayingpodcast.com where we review non-Star Trek movies. And, of course, you can find our archive sections with our Friday the 13th retrospective series that we completed recently. If you'd like to send us an email with some suggestions or comments, you can send an email to show at nowplayingpodcast.com or you can go to our homepage and click on the link for our forums where we have a thread for every episode in this series. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today for this discussion of Star Trek. No problem. Thanks for having us. Talk to you later. And we'll talk to you all very soon. Live long and prosper. <laughs> Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages 
the Starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved.